in Judges, making our way through the book of Judges. We have come to chapter 3, verses 12 through 30, a quite familiar passage of Scripture, perhaps to many of you, but have no fear. I will not talk about how fat Eglon was. There are more important things in this passage to discuss, John. Let us pray and give thanks to God and ask God's blessing upon us as we go into his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your mighty spirit. We thank you for Holy Spirit as he comes to us and he opens our eyes and opens our ears and he opens our hearts that the word of God may be illuminated in our souls so that we might know better who you are, and how we might worship you. Lord, there are those here this evening who need to be broken. Your word needs to fall on them like a rock and break their hearts so that they might no longer trust in themselves, but trust only in Christ. Lord, I pray that your word would do that work this evening. And then, Heavenly Father, there are those here who need the comfort and the assurance that comes only from your word applied by your spirit. I pray now that they would hear you speaking to them through your word and reminding them that you are their God and they are your child. Lord, whatever the work that needs to be done in this place, pray that by your Spirit, you would delight to do it, that you would get the glory, and your church would be all the better for it. We do pray and we ask all of these in the name of our Savior and your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Judges chapter 3 reminds me that we are generally a people who have lost our amazement. Just seems to be that the older we get, the harder it is to amaze us. I'm always encouraged in watching children and how easily children are amazed amazed at the simplest and most mundane of things. Perhaps this is why Jesus says in Mark chapter 10 and verse 15 that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not inherit it. Perhaps inherent within those words is this sense of amazement that we must have. When was the last time you were truly amazed? Remember the first time you rode on a bike? Or rode a roller coaster? Or rode in an airplane? Truly, truly amazing. Well, how about the first time that you saw the ocean? I saw a really good movie in 3D.
You know what I'm convinced of is that much of what plagues our Christian life, much of what ails the Christian is a lack of amazement at the mercy of God. We sung the song, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Do do we really? Do we really? Many of us perhaps have just been saved too long. And we fail to be amazed that we are even saved at all. The reason I am convinced that many of us struggle with our Christian life and the reason that we find ourselves easily offended and offending others and the reason why we are not growing as we should is because we fail to be amazed at the fact that God has saved us and granted to unworthy sinners grace, mercy, and life. Think about it. Whenever somebody, whenever somebody comes to me and begin to uh, express frustration in their Christian life or begin to express a, a, a lack of excitement and a lack of, of joy and seem to be overwhelmed, believing they are overworked and underappreciated, I try to share with them just how merciful God has been in spite of it all. Just how good and how loving God has been in spite of it all. And inevitably, the response is, yeah, but. And when I hear, yeah, but, I know they don't get it. You don't get it. When it comes to understanding the depth of God's love and mercy and how he can look upon a sinner as I and grant forgiveness and eternal life, beloved, there is no yeah, but. To say yeah, but is to assume that you deserve more than you've already received. I do believe that life is always better understood, faithfully lived when we understand that no matter the circumstances, we are getting better than we deserve. If you are this evening saved, If God has taken your sins away and has declared that he is your God and you belong to him, you need to stand amazed. If you are not at this very moment suffering the consequences in eternal hell for your sins, you need to stand amazed. When we fail to be amazed, the only option is sin. The only option is sin. This is the state of Israel in our text this evening. They failed to be amazed 
at the salvation of God. After the death of Othniel, we see in verse 12, after the death of Othniel, Israel, the Bible says, once again did what was evil in the sight of God. The key word there is again. Again. This is an amazing word. God has given them victory over their enemy, had risen, had, had, had rose up a deliverer, Othniel, to deliver them from their enemies and had brought 40 years, 40 years of peace, 40 years of prosperity to the nation. A whole generation, 40 years, a whole generation had experienced nothing but the peace and the prosperity of God. And apparently worshipped him in spirit and in truth. However, as we've seen before, even back in in chapter 2, if that generation which is faithful is not also careful to pass along the faith in tangible and living ways to the next generation, the next generation will surely turn away and fall away from the faith of their fathers and their mothers. They will cease to be amazed. Inevitably, when this happens, the only option is sin. And we are not told what evil Israel did. But we can be confident that it had a great deal to do with idolatry and false worship. You know what makes all this so amazing? You read these passages and all these passages in Judges. What makes this all so amazing is just how long-suffering and patient God is. This is really what makes our sin, Israel's sin, your sin and my sin, so amazing is the the fact that God is so patient and long-suffering. He suffers long with his people. He suffers long with humanity. The Bible says, Reminds us that God, the God we serve is a God who is slow to anger. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, the Bible says, The Lord passed before them and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 86 and verse 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is patient. He is slow to anger. And this patience and this long-suffering is actually a manifestation and a demonstration of his sovereignty. It's a result of the fact that God is sovereign. It reminds us that God is always in control. 
He's not like you and I. He's not like us. Our anger is often emotional, fickle. Our anger is fly off the hat, capricious, all of a sudden, out of nowhere. When we see someone get angry, we use words that demonstrate the, the nature of human frustration. We'll say, wow, he just went off. And we'll just say, she lost her head. Now, unfortunately, I have to admit that I've been accused of doing that a time or two, maybe once or twice. Thankfully, God, it's not like that. God does not just go off. God does not just all of a sudden lose his head. He does not fly off the handle. And rather... Our God is slow to anger, quick to forgive, because he abounds in covenant, faithful, steadfast love for his people. And yet the scripture does remind us that even though God is slow to anger, it does not say that he does not get angry at all. He might be slow to anger. He might be patient and he might be kind. But God does get angry. And his anger is against sin and wickedness. And it can and it will be expressed. And we see it manifested. We see it manifested against Israel. God's judgment in this passage is first against his own people. Israel does what is evil in the sight of God, and God judges them. How does he judge them? Well, the Bible says in verse 12 that God strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. And this is interesting because the Moabites are not strangers to the Israelites. The Israelites are not strangers to the Moabites. In fact, they're very familiar with the people of Moab. Now, the Moabites were probably not people who were left in the land, as we saw early on in our lesson, the beginning of chapter 3, where the Bible says that God left nations in the land so that Israel might learn war. Well, the Moabites were not among the nations that God left in the land. They were dwelling outside of Canaan. But Israel was quite familiar with the Moabites. For the Moabites were descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. And they had a history with the Moabites. In fact, the Moabites were afraid of the Israelites. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 15 reminds us that after the Moabites had heard about the exploits of Jehovah in redeeming the nation of Israel out of Egypt, they feared the Israelites because they feared their God. 
And therefore, we should understand that the only way that the Moabites were going to come into Canaan and attack the Israelites is that they were strengthened by God himself. God did this thing. Because he's sovereign. He strengthened the Moabites against the Israelites. And yet notice, as God strengthened Eglon, the king of Israel, to attack the king of Moab, to attack Israel, notice what Eglon does. Eglon demonstrates the wickedness of his own heart, this so that we don't sympathize with Eglon. Even though Eglon is an instrument in the hands of God to judge his people, don't be too quick to sympathize with Eglon, for Eglon is a wicked man. And his heart is wicked. How do we know this? Well, the minute that he is strengthened by God to go against Israel, he goes and calls the Ammonites and the Amalekites. It's not going to be enough just for the Moabites to attack Israel. He goes and gets more of Israel's enemies and joins forces with them. And they together come and subdue the Israelites. There's nothing in the text that says that God told um, um, Eglon to go and grab the Amalekites and the um, Ammonites. He's got an opportunity to stick it to Israel. And he's going to stick it to the people of God. And so for 18 years, Israel is subjected to the rule and the reign of Eglon. 18 years of being under his rule. 18 years of exploitation and subjection. 18 years being exploited and pillaged by Eglon. Finally, after 18 years, the nation of Israel does what God always wants them to do. They finally come to themselves And they cry out to God for help. And as we saw in our earlier times, our God is a helper. He delights to help his people when they come to the end of themselves and cry out for his help. He is a merciful God abounding in steadfast covenant love. And he moves with delight to help his people. And so the Bible says in verse 15, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjamite, a left-hand man. He raises up Ehud, the Benjamite, who is left-handed. Skilled with his left hand. Now, this here is strange on a couple accounts. The first account, it is strange because he's left-handed. 
Now, left-handed people are a minority in our society. They are a serious minority at the time of judges. I remember when our, our kids were smaller and um, um, Tony was beginning to, to play ball and things and he would pick up a bat or he would pick up a club and he would start swinging it and naturally he should be swinging right-handed. But he's swinging the bat left-handed. He's swinging the clubs left-handed. This is not a good thing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, should I try to discourage this left-handedness? And we go to the golf shop one day looking for some little clubs for him. And the golf pro says, well, is he right-handed or left? I said, he's left-handed. He looks at me. He says, you know, you might want to change that. It's just going to be harder to find clubs. Everything on the rack is going to be right-handed. Fortunately, we didn't change it. But the fact of the matter is, we live in a right-handed world. The cars you drive are designed for right-handed people. When you were in, when you were in school, in grade school, all the desks were designed for right-handed people. It's a strange thing that here is God raising up Ehud and declaring that he is a left-handed man. But it's not only strange that he's left-handed, it's strange that he's left-handed from the tribe of Benjamin. Because the name Benjamin means son of my right hand. And here is a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the tribe of God's right hand. You know, this idea that, that Ehud is, is left-handed might have more meaning than just the fact that he is able to use his left hand like most of us use our right hand, but it may mean that he has only the use of his, right, of his left hand. It may mean and probably means that he is only able to use his left hand because his right hand is not, does not have the ability to be used. Perhaps in some sense or some way, he's handicapped. And here is God raising up a deliverer from among the people of God who only has the use of his left hand. And if he's going to therefore accomplish what God is raising him up for, he's going to have to use his left hand in such a way so as to bring judgment against Israel's enemies and victory for the people of Israel. So what does he do? He, he creates a sword, he creates a weapon, a double-edged weapon, a weapon that's going to be about 18 inches long, and he positions the weapon upon his right thigh. He hides it, which is what a left-handed person would do, because you ever saw the movie Gladiator, right? You ever seen the movie? You should. If you haven't, you should. I'm giving y'all these good movies to see. I'm watching them bad ones. 
You ever see gladiator and you see that the soldiers when they're walking around and they have their swords, their swords are not on their right side if they are right hand. How you going to pull a sword off of your right side? The sword is on your left side if you're right handed. But Eglon, I mean Ehud, probably has no use of his right hand. So his sword, unlike the vast majority of soldiers, his sword would be on his left, on his right hand side, able to be pulled with his left hand. This, beloved, is important. He makes this sword fitting for the tax that God has called him to. And notice that when he gets into the presence of the king, when he is able to maneuver his way into the king's presence, apparently he is not, the, the king is not threatened by him. Apparently the king looks at him and sees a person that could not possibly threaten the life of the king. Who would be threatened by a man who has no sword on his hip and has no use of his right hand? He looks at the king. After they have brought the king tribute and gifts, he says, by the way, king, I have a message for you. I have a secret message from you, for you. And the king excuses everybody else out of his presence, demonstrating his pride and his arrogance, wanting to have this message all to himself. He brings Ehud close. And Ehud says, I have a message even from God. And with the use of the only hand that is available to him, Ehud, with his left hand, draws his sword from his right thigh and delivers the message of God to King Eglon. And what is that message? It is a message of judgment. It is a message of of judgment. Here, here, right here, beloved, here this evening is the message of the Word of God to us this evening. It is a message of judgment. When Ehud comes into the presence of the king of Moab. I am not sure what all Ehud said to Eglon, but I am sure he told him at least this much. Dear king, your soul is required of you tonight. And he thrust that weapon into the gut of that overweight king. Here's some aspects of the judgment of God that this passage teaches us that I don't want us to miss. You see here that the judgment of God is swift. You see here that the judgment of God is painful. 
and you see here that the judgment of God is final. The judgment of God is swift. You see this in verse 21. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and he thrust it into the belly of the king. Now you best believe that that did not, that did not take very long. That was a swift judgment. Ehud is armed and dangerous. And while everyone there, including the king, was probably focusing in on his right hand, judgment comes by way of the left hand. It comes unexpectedly. And when it comes... Come swiftly. He executes Eglon with the swiftness. This is an important word for us this evening. For the judgment of God is just like that, beloved. Oftentimes, unexpected, for sure, swift. God is patient. God endures with much patient sin in this world. But when he decides to move against it in judgment, his judgment is swift and it's sure. The Bible says that the judgment of God will come upon the world like a thief in the night. I remember when I was a um, I was growing up, and my, my aunt, who lived a couple of doors away from us, she was a single mom, and she had, she had a couple of big boys that she was raising. And once they began to get up in size, she couldn't um, apply the rod of discipline as easily as she could when they were smaller. And so she had to find out ways to maneuver around in order to execute punishment and judgment upon them. Well, one day she decided that she had to get at her one of her larger sons, but she couldn't figure out how she was going to pin him down long enough to punish him. You know what she did? She waited until he went in the bathroom. (laughs) And while he was in the restroom, She burst in on him and applied the rod of correction. Beloved, we laugh, but this is the way God's judgment comes upon the world. Jesus said it would. In Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 26. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. One day they were eating and drinking and making merry, and the next day they and their houses were washed away. 
Jesus says, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. One day the sun was shining and the next day, The sky was falling, and everyone was destroyed. Jesus said, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He goes on to say, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other one left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. When the judgment of God comes against sin, it comes swiftly. Our God is patient. Our God is long-suffering. But when he has had an end to sin and he determines to bring his judgment, it will be a swift judgment. But not only is the judgment swift, the judgment is also painful. In verse 22, it says, And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. I love it. When the message that Uhud had brought to Eglon came in the form of the sword, this sword was created for the purpose of penetrating the excess weight of Eglon. Sharpened on both sides. 18 plus inches long. And when he When Ahud put the sword into the king, you can imagine the pain. You can imagine how the blade and his two-sidedness inflicted not just fatal injury, but a painful injury. But again, this should not surprise us. For the judgment of God, the Bible reminds us, is not just swift. It is also a painful judgment. The Bible reminds us that the judgment of God, that is swift is also, and also painful, consider hell itself. The Bible says that hell is a place referred to where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a place of torment. A place of everlasting punishment. It is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus says in Luke chapter 16 that the rich man who died was in torment and was in anguish. Anguish and torment. Eternal 
everlasting pain is the Bible's description of the judgment of God. Such was the case with Eglon when the judgment of God came to him as well. But not only is the judgment swift and not only is it painful, but you look at our text and you see also that the judgment is final. See this in verse 29. And after he had killed the king and after he had escaped, the Bible says that he strengthened, he strengthened the rest of the nation. Ahud blew the trumpet and rallied the nation and they went out and achieved the final judgment of God as they destroyed the army of the Moabites, killing some 10,000 of the able-bodied army of the Moabites. And consequently, the people of God had rest, not 40 years, but 80 years, two generations. Apparently, that previous generation learned its lesson. 40 years under Othniel, 80 years after peace and prosperity in the relationship with God. This is the nature of God's judgment upon the earth. When God finally moves in judgment, it will not only be swift, it will not only be painful, but it is final. Final. When God's judgment come upon the earth, there will not be one stone left on unturned. Whatever has been done in the darkness, the Bible tells us it will be brought into the light. Every heart shall be examined. The sheep will be separated from the goats. Every word and deed will be brought into account. And there will not be one sin that is not accounted for at the final judgment. Because when God finally moves, it's going to be swift. It's going to be painful. But that's going to be it. This should remind us that the judgment of the Lord is an awesome thing. Do you stand amazed? The judgment of the Lord is an awe-inspired reality. In Joel chapter 2 and verse 11, the Bible says, The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? That is the question. That is the question before the people of God this evening. The judgment of God is coming. Who will stand? The judgment of God is sure. 
Who will endure it? This is the question that is not only before the people of God this evening. This is the question before the people of the world. Who can endure the judgment of God? Though there are many who think they can. And there are some who even believe that they won't have to. But the Bible is clear, beloved. Sin is going to be judged. All of your sins are going to be judged. No one, nowhere is getting away with anything. Eglon could not. Do we think ourselves less deserving of the judgment of God for our sin than Israel was? Do you perceive yourself less deserving of the judgment for your sins than Eglon was? Eglon couldn't stand God's judgment. Will you? Will I? Here is the good news, beloved. And this is why you need to stand amazed. Is that in a real sense? We don't have to. You do not have to stand against the judgment of God for your sins. Because there is one who already has. Jesus Christ himself, the very son of God, has come into the world and received the judgment that is due us for our sins. And you look at the judgment that Jesus received, and it has the elements of judgment that we saw here. The judgment that Jesus received was a swift judgment. The judgment that Jesus received was a painful judgment. And the judgment that Jesus received was a final judgment. His judgment was swift. You realize that all of Jesus' life as he's walking upon the earth, he kept saying, my time has not come, my time has not come. But once his time came, the judgment was swift. Once Jesus determined that now is the time that he set his face to go toward Jerusalem and ultimately to Calvary, beloved, it was but a few days before he was on that cross. It was swift. The authorities that had arrayed themselves against Christ, the Romans and the Jewish authorities and all the people of Jerusalem were crying out for his execution and swiftly it was wrought. They got him up on that cross. And but a few hours before the Sabbath, they got to get him down. It was swift. The judgment that he received. But not only was it swift, don't think for a moment that it wasn't painful. You imagine, imagine the pain of the nails of our Lord's hands 
the nails that were in his hands, and the nails that were in his feet. Beloved, the cup that our Lord looked into when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, that he prayed to the Father that he would not have to receive. What did he see in that cup but the pain of it all? The pain of the thorns on his hand. The pain of the lashes of the whip upon his back. The pain of the sword that was pierced, that was driven into his side. The pain of it all. But what of the pain of knowing that the Father would turn his face away. Even if it is but for one moment. Even if it is but for one moment of time, the pain that the Son endured when the Father turned his face away. The pain of the judgment. Beloved, it was more than any one of us could possibly stand. But it wasn't just swift, and it wasn't just painful. But, beloved, it was final. For there on the cross, in the midst of his pain and his suffering, our Savior yelled out to tell us thy. It is finished. It is finished. It is done. It is complete. No more, no more would the judgment of God be upon his people. Christ bore all of the judgment. No more would his people suffer the fear of the wrath of God against their sin. Christ took it upon himself and declared, it is finished. The debt of your sin has been paid. It is finished. When we say in the Apostles' Creed, Christ descended into hell. Beloved, he took the pain and the punishment forever. It is finished. It is finished. It is done. The shame, the guilt, the pain of sin is removed. What a Savior. What a Savior. Song is bearing shame, scoffing rude. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior. Beloved, this is why you need to stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. This is why we come to our Lord as little children, amazed that he would do it all for me. 
Guilty, vile, helpless, we, spotless lamb of God, was he full atonement? Can it be? Yes. Hallelujah. What a savior. What a savior. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. That he would love someone like me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. Oh, how marvelous. That, that, the songwriter said, this is amazing. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful, people. This is truly Amazing. As we shall see, Israel was amazed for 80 years and they lost their amazement. Have you lost yours? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what words cannot express. the amazing grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Christ. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you in the pardon of their sins who are at this moment are still on the hook for their own sins. Pray they would see the Christ. They would see the pain. They would see the judgment that was placed upon him. Receive him by faith. And know that it could be well with their soul. Pray, Lord. Save us. Everyone here, Lord. Save us. Save us in Jesus. His name we pray. Amen.